Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. I was listening to NPR yesterday and listened to a journalistic piece about a researcher who studies the physiology of lying. He examines the features of people that lie, how their biochemistry changes, how their brain changes, how their face gives off subtle but real cues that they are lying. But the piece got very interesting when the journalist began to ask the important questions. Not merely what happens when people lie, but he asked the researcher, why do people lie? And without pausing for a moment, the scientist, the secular scientist, said that sometimes people lie out of convenience. They're lazy, they want to get something, and they don't have to work for it. But it's usually out of timidity, he said. It's out of fear. Fear is what drove most people to lie. And so I want to begin tonight by asking you a question. Whom do you fear? Whom do you fear? And this is a vital question for us to wrestle with. Vital question. The one that we fear is the one that controls us. Proverbs chapter 1 and chapter 9 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fearing the Lord is the very starting point for the Christian life. Indeed, one cannot be a Christian without some measure of fear for God. But Proverbs 29 warns us that fear of man brings a snare, brings a trap. And that trap ensnares every one of us at some point or another. And many have never and will never escape it. Tonight we'll see two different examples of the fear of man. One from the religious leaders and one from Peter. But we'll also see another fear. We'll see Christ in his actions. One who was completely secure in his fear of the Lord. Let's begin by reading John chapter 18, starting in verse 12 and going through verse 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door, at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of these disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said was right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? 
And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Let's pray. Father, what is man that you are mindful of him? We are but dust, and yet we come to you tonight pleading with you that you would speak to us, that you would feed us from your word, that you would nourish us, that you would refresh us, that you would revive us, that you would sustain us, not for merely our sake, Lord, but for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin looking at Annas and Caiaphas, specifically looking at their fear. Annas and Caiaphas's fear. In the first few verses, we're told that an armed band of soldiers and guards binds Jesus and takes him to Annas' house and then to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And history tells us that Annas was not a very wholesome fellow. He was appointed the high priest in 6 AD, but was deposed in 15 AD. However, even though he was deposed, he remained the dominant voice for many years over the Sanhedrin, which is the group of Jewish elders that ruled over the city. He was a clever manipulator, and he had to be if he was going to run a machine like that, even though he had no actual power. Annas had five sons, one son-in-law and a grandson all follow him in the high priesthood. And through these familial connections, Annas remained the ranking officer, largely responsible for the actions of leadership. Annas was the one that was always consulted before executing decisions. Indeed, as one commentator put it, you could imagine how whenever a high priest came up with a plan and he brought it up to the other men, the response would be, have you cleared this with Annas yet? Annas was the man with lots of power and lots to lose. Similarly, Caiaphas was a man with much power since he was the reigning high priest at the time. He was appointed high priest in 18 AD and would remain so until he was deposed by Pontius Pilate's successor in 36 AD. Historians of the time note that Caiaphas was a rude and sly manipulator. He was an opportunist and he was bent on getting his way with or without fairness or justice. He was not afraid to shed innocent blood And like many crafty politicians of today, whatever he craved, he made it look like that's what the people really needed. So he was a friend of the people he would try and portray himself as. He was a master showman and a hypocrite. In the final trial that we'll see later in this book, at the same moment he was filled with inner glee because he had found what he thought to be uh, just condemnation, or just ground for Christ's condemnation, he also tore his robes, overcome with profound sorrow. Such reveals the character of this fiendish man. Selfish, powerful, deceitful, and with much to lose. And both Annas and Caiaphas were threatened by Christ and his ministry, his message. They had a very comfortable, cushy position. They liked their power. They liked prestige. They liked the praise of men. They liked being the ones that called the shots. But Christ came and preached a gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of humility, the gospel of submission, the gospel of justice, and the gospel of righteousness. In short, Christ proclaimed the gospel of the fear of the Lord rather than the fear of men. And these men didn't like it. Their reputation was threatened. 
They were afraid that they would lose their position, that they would be exposed by Christ as the frauds that they were, that their deeds would be shown to be truly dark because the light of Christ's truth had come forth. Their fear of loss of position and loss of reputation led these men to violate several laws and to sin against the Son of God. For example, consider just some of the ways that these righteous men of God violated their own laws and sinned against Christ. They arrested Christ without just cause and without proper evidence, both against their very own laws. The arrest was made as the result of a bribe, the blood money that was paid to Judas against the law. These men sought to condemn a man to death on the same day of his arrest, which was unlawful. They were... These men sought to, um, excuse me, in most cases, Jewish laws did not permit a sentence of death to be pronounced until the day after the accused had been convicted. They broke the law by conducting a life or death trial at night, which is again against their law. And they broke the law by striking Jesus during his own trial. And there were several other laws that they broke, but none of these things mattered to them. It had been determined long before that night that Jesus must be put to death. Annas and Caiaphas and the whole Sanhedrin were afraid. They were afraid that they would be exposed, that they would lose their reputation, that they would lose their position of power. They were afraid what the Roman governor might think, that the Roman authorities would pluck them from their position of power and toss them out. Their fear of man, their fear of loss drove them to violate their own laws, the laws that they were supposed to uphold and protect, and more importantly, drove them to violate God's law. But they aren't alone in their fears. See, we too can be driven to sin because of our fear of man, our fear of what people think of us, our fear of losing our reputation. Fear of man can lead us to disobey God and not confess our sins because we're afraid of what other people might think of us, that they'd think less of us, that we would lose our reputation, that we would be seen as less holy, less mature. We know mentally that all people in general, in the abstract, are sinners, but we are deathly afraid that people might find out we are actually a sinner. Fear of man can lead us to be harsh with our children when they misbehave. I'm not talking about righteous concern for their following God's law, for their to flourish under his gospel. But parents can think to themselves that I don't want other people to think that I'm a bad parent, so my children better behave in public. Act like you love each other. We're afraid of losing status in the eyes of men. And we can see how that concern is twisted in on us, on me, on our fears. Not concerned with their child honoring God's law. They're concerned with our reputation. That's fear of man. Fear of man can be manifested in other ways. In an inability to say no. We're afraid... Or, excuse me, we overcommit ourselves because we want to please everybody. We want everybody to like us. We want everyone to be happy. We can't stand the thought of somebody not liking us, somebody being mad at us, somebody being disappointed in us. Other people's opinion dominates us, controls us. That, too, is fear of man. Or maybe your fear is being exposed as an imposter, as a hypocrite, just like Caiaphas or Annas. Many very competent very intelligent people have this fear. They're afraid of saying the words, I don't know. They might even lie to make themselves seem smarter. They're terrified that the world will see them as ignorant or as unqualified. They're trying to act as if they're omniscient, as if they're all-knowing when only God knows all things. 
They're trying to take the place of God when they can't do that. And when they can't do that, they fear people instead. The fear of man is a snare, Proverbs tells us, because it's a false god. But the fear of the Lord is safe because he really is God. The fear of man is a closely clinging sin that entangles our legs in the race of faith. And we have to lay it aside. But how do we do that? How do we lay aside the fear of man? With a little help from an author named John Bloom, I want to give us a few steps for battling our fear of man. First, we must confess that it is sin. Confess our fear of man. As soon as you recognize fear of man, we have to confess it as sin before God and repent of it. If possible, we want to confess this to faithful friends who will help us fight it. We don't just battle this race alone. We confess it and get help. And second, question your fear of man. Examine it. What exactly are you afraid of and why? Do you really have a good reason to fear? Or do you need to examine Matthew ten twenty eight, which says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Articulating your fear often exposes it for the sad thing that it is. Number three, we must courageously confront our fear of man. Acts 5.29 says we must obey God rather than men. Obedience calls for courage. And courage is not the absence of the fear of emotion, but the resolve to obey despite what we may feel. We have to resolve to obey even if we feel afraid. Exercise your trust in God. Step out in obedience. Hear the word of our Lord in Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And then draw near to God. Listen to Him in His word. Meditate on Him and His promises. See how Christ's love for you casts out fear. How you are secure in Him. How nothing can stand between God and His people. How nothing is outside of His control. How nothing can remove His love for you. The Bible teaches that God's people are no longer motivated by a fear of terror or a legal fear, a fear of punishment, because the punishment has been taken away from us and it has been placed on Christ. God's people are now free to embrace a worshipful fear, a reverential awe motivated by love for Him and by honor that's due to Him. Trusting in God is safe, but fearing in man is not. God usually teaches us this through the hard lesson of obeying, despite feeling afraid. When we learn to trust God's promises more than our perceptions of fear, we can reach the place where we can say confidently with Hebrews 13:6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. For what can man do to me? So we've looked at Annas and Caiaphas, and how they feared losing reputation, losing their position of power. Now let's look at Peter's fear. Peter's fear. Just last week, we read about how Peter boldly snatched out his sword and lopped off the ear of one of the soldiers around him trying to defend Jesus. And he had said previously that even if everyone else left Jesus, I wouldn't do that. Bold Peter. But in our passage tonight, we see that this once bold and loyal disciple is terrified. His terror leads him to lie about a simple question from an inconsequential servant girl. He's terrified that he might have to bear the same shame as Jesus. He's terrified that he might get arrested, that he might get questioned. He's terrified he might even be condemned to death 
right beside Jesus. So he lies. Peter's fear of man drives him to lie. And it's not just one lie. It's multiple. And notice the progression in his lying. One lie leads to another and then to another. Unchecked sin in general leads to more sin, but lying is especially prolific. Lying leads to more lying. Puritan Matthew Henry said, Lying is a fruitful sin, and upon this account it is exceedingly sinful. One lie leads another to support it, and then another. It is a rule that in the devil's politics to cover sin with sin in order to escape detection. We first slip up and say something untrue, and then we need another little white lie to cover it up, and then we need another, and then we need another. And they grow in scope, and the story gets more and more elaborate until we are caught up. We are bound, enslaved by our very own false narrative, all because we were afraid of being caught, afraid of being exposed, afraid of what other people might think of us, afraid of what punishment might befall us. We've seen this passage in the Bible, this pattern of fear and lying. It's all over the Bible. Abraham was afraid, and so he lied about his wife and even told his wife to lie about her identity in Genesis 12, Genesis 20, because he was afraid of the Egyptians, that they would kill him and take his beautiful wife. His fear drove him to break God's law and to tell his wife to do the same. Later, in 1 Samuel 15, that Sean covered last week, Saul disobeys God, he disregards the prophet Samuel's orders, and he does not destroy everyone and everything of the Amalekites like he was supposed to do. So Samuel confronts him and he asks, Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? He was caught. So what did he do? He says to Samuel, I have obeyed. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag here, the king of Amalek. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, the people took the spoil. The people took the sheep and the oxen, the best things, and devoted them to destruction and to sacrifice to the Lord. Did you catch that? He said, I obeyed. I went to battle. I did what I was told. But the people, they disobeyed. They took the stuff. They wanted to keep it. Sounds a lot like Adam in the garden. He knew that when he had sinned, he was in trouble. He was covered in shame, and so he fashioned leaves to cover up his shame. But God could see right through them. Then he fashioned a lie, which is a verbal cover for our shame. That woman, that woman you gave me, God, she made me do it. She gave me the apple. But God could see right through that lie, just like he saw through the fig leaves. And Saul, just like Adam, was afraid. He knew he had sinned, and he tried to use a lie to cover up his sin. Samuel goes on to say to Saul that God had rejected him as king because he had rejected the word of the Lord. But Saul's response to the rejection is important for us tonight. Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. I feared the people. Fear led Saul into sin. Imagine, a king was afraid of what his subjects might think of him. Fear of being unpopular. Fear of losing our reputation. Of not being praised by men. Fear of losing his position of favor in the hearts of his subjects. Fear led him to break God's law and to try to cover it up with a lie. I had an experience as a parent 
recently that illustrates this point. Parents in this room have probably had a similar experience. I came into the kitchen. I found an open box of Oreos on the counter. And there were crumbs on the floor, crumbs on the counter. We had an obvious case of illegal breaking and entering into the snack stash. And so I called in the suspect suspect for questioning. He walked in. He had a noticeable ring of chocolate around his mouth, crumbs on his hands and shirt. So I asked him, son, did you get some cookies without asking? Looks me straight in the face, covered with evidence. Nope, wasn't me. I asked him again, are you sure you didn't eat any of these Oreos? Denies it. I asked him, what what about these crumbs on your face and on your hands? I don't know how those got there, but I can assure you they are not from those Oreos. Well, you may not be as blatant as a child with crumbs all over him, but you might be tempted to lie in other ways. We've all have been caught. We we caught in something, caught red-handed, so to speak, and we try to deceive others, try to cover our tracks, try to, try to hide our sin, make it not look quite as bad. We maybe say some white lies, or maybe we don't actually lie, because we're, sinner, we're, uh, we're Christians, we don't like to do that, but we just omit certain truths. We try and deceive by misinformation, by misleading, which is still lying. Our fear of man can tempt us to lie we try to make ourselves look better in the eyes of people. People ask us how we're doing, and we don't want to tell the truth about our struggles, about the sin that's dominating our lives, because we don't want them to think that we're a sinner, and we actually struggle. We also try, like Peter, to cover our shame, the shame that we feel when we're caught in lies. We get caught in some sin, but we deny it. We double down, we try and dig our way out of this hole and only make things worse. We keep telling lies and building an even more complex charade. But just like Peter, and just like Adam, God sees right through our leaves of deception we try to use to cover our sin and our shame. We are like Adam, naked and exposed before God. He has even more sure evidence of our lies than Oreo crumbs on our face. He sees right through to our heart. He knows all things, all truth, and He knows us, each and every one of us, to the very core of our being. As we heard this morning, God sees right to the heart. Our lies and our whole lives are exposed before Him with greater clarity than the text is right before you. Perhaps you feel bound right now in some very lies that have you wrapped up. You're stuck, you're enslaved in a web of deceit. You're ashamed that you've been driven by fear into a charade of falsehood that now enslaves you. Well, hear me tonight. Further lies will not save you. You must come to the truth. Come to the light. Come to the liberty of Christ that saves you, not to the deceptive lies that ensnare you. Don't dig yourself deeper into this hole. Christ offers to you tonight forgiveness for your shame, forgiveness for your fear, forgiveness for your lies and your deception. He offers you the gift of peace with God, a gift of security rather than fear. He offers you a promise of safety. The good news for Peter and the good news for us is that we don't have to be dominated by fear. And the good news for us today is that we're not disqualified just like Peter was not disqualified 
because he's ever lied. Later in this book, we see Peter's restoration. Even though Christ himself was abandoned by Peter, Peter is not abandoned by Christ. Christ forgives and restores Peter. And that same treatment is offered to you. We have hope. See his great love for you. How he is never driven by fear and how Christ never used lies to try and protect himself. Indeed, Christ himself was condemned with lies so that you might be restored by the truth. He was crushed by those who feared men so that you would never have to live in fear of man. He was falsely accused so that you would never have to fear false accusations. And the eternal truth incarnate was put to death so that you might live in the truth and walk in the light. Come to Christ and receive his security so that you might not have to live in fear any longer. Walk in the light as he is in the light so that you might be set free from the slavery to darkness and slavery to deception. We've seen how Annas and Caiaphas feared. They feared losing their reputation, their position. We've seen how Peter was afraid of what people would think and how he used lies to cover it up. Now let's examine Christ's fear. Let's look at Christ's fear. How did proper fear, fear of the Lord, lead Christ to act in this scene? How was his behavior different from Peter's and different from Annas and Caiaphas? Christ's fear of the Lord freed him from the need to lie to protect himself. He didn't act like Peter or like Saul or like Adam because he completely trusted the Father to protect him and to vindicate him from false charges. Christ did not cling to his position, to his reputation, but willingly bore the reproach of an arrest and a mistrial because he completely trusted in his Father. This is the difference between fear of the Lord and fear of man. Will you trust the Father? Will you trust his word? Or will you instead doubt it and believe lies? Will you believe that God is a strong tower for you, a place of refuge? Or will you believe that you must lie to protect yourself? Will you believe that God's plan for you is good? Or will you buck and fight to try to avoid any shame, any poor reputation among men? It is the fear of the Lord not in any deceit or slander that we will find safety. It is in godly fear that we will find protection from shame and from reproach. It was fear of man that led Joseph's brothers to try and kill him. But it was the fear of God that protected Joseph, even when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown in prison for years. It was godly fear, not fear of man, that allowed Joshua and Caleb to be the only spies to give a good report about the promised land. And about the Israelites' ability to take it, for they knew that God would be with them. It was godly fear, not fear of man, that freed Daniel from the fear of a king and allowed him to boldly enter into a furnace and into a lion's den rather than renounce his faith. It was godly fear, not fear of man, that allowed the prophets to proclaim boldly God's truth to kings that wanted to kill them. Proverbs tells us that those who fear the Lord will fear nothing else. That the fear of the Lord leads to long life. That it is a secure fortress for those who fear. That the fear of the Lord is a fountain of wisdom and that it brings honor and that it should be praised wherever it is seen. And you can have this fear. You can have the fear of the Lord. You can have this godly fear, which is the beginning of all wisdom. You see, the narrative tonight is not the end of the story. God did not give up on Peter. Even though... Christ was forsaken 
three times by Peter, Peter was forgiven and restored. And because of his forgiveness, Peter was emboldened with a godly fear. In Acts 4, Peter and John are before the council of religious leaders, the priests, the Sadducees, the captain of the temple guard. This group was much of the same people that had conducted the mistrial of Jesus, the same group that was driven by fear of man to crucify the Son of Man. And you'd expect Peter would be even more afraid of these men because he had just seen his Savior condemned, whipped, beaten, and crucified. But Peter did not cower in fear this time. Indeed, when he was told to quit teaching about Christ and his resurrection, Peter and John answered, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak but what we have seen and heard. Peter's fear is replaced with courage. With boldness, his slavery is replaced with liberty. His faith allowed him to fear his fear of man to be replaced with the proper fear of the Lord. But it is only through the work of Christ that we can taste this freedom. We must turn from our sin and see Christ as our great champion. He is the one that bore the reproach of the Father so that we could be freed from the reproach of the world. Christ willingly bore the shame of sin so that we could be free from the fear of shame of men. Christ bore the ultimate of false accusations. The sinless one was charged with all sin so that we might be free from the fear of false accusations and false condemnations. This is the good news of the gospel. You see, in Christ, no matter what men may do to us, we know that we have been freed from the possibility of condemnation before God. We have been declared fully righteous, fully forgiven by the Father. Our eternal state is secure in Christ so that we need not fear what any man can do to us. No high priest can put us into hell. No Roman governor can remove from us the declaration of not guilty that we've been given in Christ. No trial can erase our status as God's child. No shame or sin or reproach can cut us out from God's inheritance. And it's only in that truth, once we have been declared righteous, when we have been justified before God, adopted forever into His family, that we can overcome the fear of man. As I close tonight, consider a few ways that God's salvation frees us from the fear of man. Godly fear frees us from fear of man's opinion. We know that God alone, <clears throat> excuse me, we know that God loves us and we can live with the disapproval of men and be free from the slavery of people pleasing. Godly fear frees us to evangelize. When we know that we've been adopted by God forever in his household, we can overcome our fear of possibly losing a relationship. Or being seen as foolish because we share the gospel with someone. Godly fear frees us from anxiety, from fear about our physical needs. When we know that God is our Father and that He will provide for us everything that we need, we don't have to lie and cheat and steal to get the things that we want. We can be content in our good Father's provision for us. Godly fear frees us from shame because we know that regardless of what people think of us, Regardless of our reputation among men, our Father holds us in the highest regard because He sees in us the perfections of His very own Son. We have before us tonight another opportunity, another encouragement for us in our godly fear, and that's the Lord's Supper. I say it is an encouragement for you in your fear of the Lord because when Jesus died, He shed His blood and His body. He offered up for us on our behalf, his own death. He purchased all the promises of God for us. 
Paul says all the promises of God find their yes in him. Every gift of God and all our joyful fellowship with God was obtained by the blood of Jesus. When Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? He means this. Do we not at the Lord's table feast spiritually by faith on every spiritual blessing bought by the body and blood of Christ? No unbeliever can do that. The devil cannot do that. It is a gift for the family of God. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we feast spiritually by faith on all the promises of God bought by the blood of Jesus. We see in the picture of the table the promise that God has brought us into his family. He has seated us at his table, and he will never cast out those that are found in his son. We are secure. We are as secure at the table as his very own son. He would have to cast his son away from the table before he could cast us away from the table. That security feeds our soul. It enables us to battle against our fear of man. When God is for us, who can be against us? This is a meal for those that fear the Lord, those that have come to faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and those that have come to believe on Him for forgiveness of sins. If that is you, if your life is marked by a devotion to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and fellowship with the body and to prayer, just like we read in Acts 2, then you're invited to come. But if you have not come to faith, if you're not connected to a local congregation, then this table is not for you. I hope that you see in this table and feel fear. I hope that you see the elements, the body and blood of Christ separated and broken, and fear that that is the fate that awaits you. You will be broken for your sins and die apart from Him to spend an eternity in hell. Come to Him by faith first. Submit to His will for you in baptism, and then you may come to the table. For the rest of us, let us take a moment and consider Christ's sacrifice for us, the security that we have in Him, and the place that we've been given as sons at His very own table. Servants, please come forward.